Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And joining us on the other side of the mic is one of the most prolific advocates in the crypto market, one of the most well-known investors in this market. It's our guest, Kyle Samani, founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital. The firm was founded in 2017. It was Born in that Cambrian explosion of crypto hedge funds, if you remember reading the headlines back then, hundreds and hundreds of funds came into the industry at the time. Not many have survived, but Multicoin has not only survived, but they've thrived. I think at the time when I first met you and the block was just a glitter in our eye, you were managing something like 50 to $75 million. I don't even want to know how much you manage now. I assume it's in the billions. But Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot to unpack here. How's business? Frank, it's good to see your beautiful face. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. I feel like I've been harassing you since four years since we met at the White Horse in that little diner back in early 2018. I know. It feels like just yesterday. And I think we can kind of maybe... Harken back to those days, right? You know, we kind of were able to grind through what was an excruciating bear market. We obviously weren't alone. Solana is another project or another group of folks who made it through. Uh, FTX, another one of your investments, kind of came in a little bit later on and and what might have been thought of as a crypto winner. But you got to the end of the finish line. What do you think you attribute to? that sticking power, that success, what kept you going even during those uncertain times? Well, first, I would say uh, our portfolio founders, I have a pleasure of working with some of the best in the world. And uh, if they keep working hard, then I have no excuse not to work just as hard to help support them, help get money in the door, help whatever needs to get done, help make it happen. I mean, I'd suggest, certainly there's quite a bit of luck involved. Uh, a lot of funds, founders, Teams almost died in the bear market. I mean, there's lots of those stories out there. So definitely luck helped. And I think the third is just persistence and grit. 
Uh, I'm very fortunate that both my parents were immigrants and I uh, was instilled in me from a very young age to have a hard work ethic and go make shit happen. And uh, I continue to maintain that work ethic to this day, even though it annoys a lot of people around me. <laughs> You're certainly known for being tenacious and certainly unwavering in your commitment to building the firm that you've built today. And you've seen, you've seen waves. I mean, even since 2017, there's been a few waves and the targets you probably have identified for investments that can deliver outsized returns have changed. I want to maybe start with NFTs and Web3 because it's top of mind. It's the, these are the buzzwords I see when new funds are launching. So funds that have come into the market more recently, this is what falls under the mandate, if you will. And you you said something pretty interesting in a podcast I was listening to where you're really interested and you think there could be 200 plus companies that arise in this corner of the market that take NFTs to the next level where they're not just static JPEGs that sit on your screen but can actually change, morph, evolve in a similar way to how, and these this is the way you put it, the New York Times in, in the late 90s was basically just the static newspaper until they decided that it was smart or would be smart to actually update the page as the articles came out. You see something similar happening to NFTs. Can you walk us through how you envision NFTs changing and your thesis around investing in that space. Happy to walk through some of these thoughts, Frank, and uh, just let me know. I could rant on this for quite some time. Uh, so first, in terms of how I think they're going to evolve, the point of a blockchain is to keep track of who has how many coins. That's actually really all something like Ethereum or Solana does. The smart in the smart contract part of these things is really about defining relationships between assets. So the most common relationship you have is just the price between two assets. So like a Uniswap pool being the kind of canonical example of that. But there's a lot of different forms of state in these systems. And a lot of these different pieces of state have different forms of mathematical relationships between them. The simplest is the Uniswap pool example. Um, but when people typically think about a mathematical relationship between assets, Probably most people think about derivatives as, as being the most common example. And part of the reason we're so bullish Solana, which I'm sure we'll touch on here in a bit, is, is because we think it enables the most composability and it enables the most pieces of mathematical state to interact with, with each other in as tightly coupled of a way as possible. So far in NFTs, we don't really have a lot of notion of pieces of state that have a relationship to one another. You vaguely have this in the notion that like there's 10,000 apes in a collection, but beyond the fact that they all have like the ape, whatever tag in them, they actually don't really have any other relationship to one another. And I think the kind of richest design space for NFTs is in uh, introducing new relationships between NFTs and allowing NFTs to evolve over time. So I'll give you some examples of what that, that could entail. One example is, you know, today NFTs are pristine, right? You design an image, you sell it, and it's just perfectly pristine. In with physical art, obviously, you have transport and and uh, cost. There's a risk of things getting damaged. Um, you've got storage costs, etc. 
you could imagine there's NFTs that actually degrade over time or degrade when they're traded or something. So that's kind of interesting. You can imagine NFTs that actually have relationships to each other. The most obvious example of this would probably be Beeple's 5,000 Days. Beeple's 5,000 Days should be 5,000 small NFTs in a two-by-two grid, right, where those each have a coordinate, right, in each of those. And uh, I forget the guy's name who bought it. Purse or... I forget his name. But, you know, what he should be doing with this, and I'm shocked that he's not, is introducing some sort of game and saying, if you can assemble... And a nine of these, nine of the 5,000 in like, you know, in a square, right? Like you unlock something or whatever. But now, now you can start to say these NFTs have relationships to each other in some sort of unique way. You can see other examples of predecessor examples of this. You see like the, the million pixels type things. It's like you can buy a pixel on the internet or like buy an NFT and put it on the page. Recombining these and kind of new forms of socialized social games I think is a very interesting uh, opportunity set for NFTs. Uh, and again, it's basically completely unexplored at the current moment. Certainly another vector of kind of interesting NFTs are, are stealth NFTs or private NFTs. So this would be an NFT where you have to own it to see what the thing is. Um, you can imagine for any form of fan club, um, this could be quite interesting. Hey, I'm Justin Bieber. I'm dropping whatever, a new piece of art or something or a new song, and only my first 1,000 fans, they get to listen to it three days early, kind of a thing. Um, so there's all these kinds of, of unique opportunities to create basically more elaborate games around the NFTs. And you can do that with privacy locks. You can do that with own three of 20 to unlock something. Um, but you're just introducing more complexity and, quite frankly, more game mechanics uh, around the NFTs. Um, I think that's going to take off in, in a pretty big way. I know the Metaplex team, which is building a lot of these core libraries for Solana, is really providing this infrastructure so anyone can do all this stuff. Uh, but we're going to see it happen on other chains as well. I don't mean to suggest it will only be on Solana. And so we're very, very excited about that evolution of things. In terms of where are we investing in NFTs, there's probably three major layers of the stack to think about, and we are probably investing in two of them. The first layer is what I'll call like primitives or infrastructure. And so the two most substantial examples of that, that we, we've been public about are Arweave and Render. Arweave is a storage network that enables you to store anything, pay once, store forever. If you're going to say this JPEG is here and anyone can buy and trade it forever, it would be nice that the JPEG is guaranteed to be hosted in a location forever. Um, and, and Arweave is really the perfect fit for that. Um, if you look at the graph of growth of data being stored in Arweave, somewhere around October of last year, it just turns vertical. Um, and a pretty substantial percentage of that is uh, NFTs, specifically from Solana, actually, uh, because Metaplex integrates natively with Arweave. The other major infrastructure piece we've invested in is called Render. And the vision for Render is to be a basically Airbnb for your graphics card. So you have a latent GPU on your gaming computer at home, rent it out for a rendering job. Uh, the team that makes the Render network uh, happens to be a company called Otoy. Otoy is a 13 or 14 year old company now uh, founded by two gentlemen, one named Jules Orbach, who's the current founder and CEO. Uh, and the other who you've probably have heard of is Ari Emanuel of Hollywood fame. And uh, Otoy makes a piece of software called Octane Render. And Octane Render today is the number one market share software uh, for digital artists um, and in movie studios. Every major movie studio in the world uses Render, Disney, Paramount, you know, all these guys. And then almost every major digital artist today uses Render. Majority of people's uh, everydays, are, for example, are built using Octane. 
Um, and so obviously Octane feeds the render network. And there's a great opportunity there to, to just completely change the cost uh, and time required to render these JPEGs or these images or art. So that's kind of primitive layer of the stack. We've invested in Metaplex, which we announced a couple weeks ago. Uh, Metaplex is, is, you could call it the Uniswap of NFTs on Solana. That, that analogy isn't perfect, but it, it, it's okay. Zora is probably the closest equivalent on, on Ethereum. Uh, certainly we, we've been interested there. Uh, but then the, really the third layer, the second layer we've invested in has been exchanges. We announced our investment in Haku, which is an NFT-focused exchange focused on in-game assets on Polygon. And we've made mm, two other NFT exchange investments that are not yet announced. The way I think about NFT exchanges is they're going to be a ton of them. Can we just double click on this for sure. a second for listeners? And you can incorporate this question into your how you're about to describe this investment, but how do you view the difference between marketplace and exchange? Are they the same? Are they different? And how do the exchanges that are now coming online, which you see a bunch coming online in the future, how do they differ from marketplaces? Uh, I use the terms interchangeably for the most part. Um, I think the term marketplace to most people implies there's some level of discovery happening. Um, you're browsing pages, there's rich images and videos and such, and maybe there's an AI that guides you to things, you know, figures out what you're going to like and such. Um, exchange kind of implies it's a little bit more transactional. It's just, you show up, you know what you want, you hit the buy button and you go away. R the, the opportunity set in NFT, really marketplace, marketplace is the better word here, um, is it primarily around discovery and curation. It really doesn't make sense to have a exchange that's is for trading domain names, like let's say .eth or .sol domain names, be the same exchange where you trade apes, which is the same exchange where you trade in-game assets, which is the same exchange where you would trade, let's say, interest in a, in a music NFT and a song NFT or something. Mm. The user experiences around all of those, um, the engagement loops and flows with email, with push notifications, with hey, maybe there's revenue shares involved in some of these assets. There's so much nuance around each of these things that it's really kind of silly to bundle all of those types of asset trades in the same UI. I totally agree. They may all happen to, to use the same basic uh, standard, which is an NFT standard, uh, Metaplex on Solana or 721 on Ethereum or whatever. But you know, the standard is not the commonality from a user perspective. The commonality is, is something about the vertical and the content itself. Exactly. Like if you think about something like Metaverse Land, right, you're probably going to want to buy that through something like a crypto Zillow rather than an OpenSea, right? Because you want to be able to explore these investment opportunities in the same way you would real estate rather than in the same way you would a board ape. Correct. In fact, there's already a handful of startups that are like calling themselves Zillow for metaverse real estate to, to your point exactly. So uh, we think there's going to be a ton of NFT exchange or marketplaces. We're already investors and in, I think three, at least three, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to invest in more because there's going to be a lot of these for different verticals. They're not going to be winner take all, even within a given market, there's going to be a lot of uh, heterogeneity. So certainly that's kind of the second major layer of the stack to invest in. Uh, I, I skipped kind of a layer, which was Metaplex, um, but I'll call that like half a layer. And then the third layer of the stack, which you could invest in is buying the NFTs directly. We have invested in a handful of NFTs. We publicized our, our loot investment right, you know, a week or something after Loot launched. We are not going to become like an NFT fund by any means, but uh, we reserve the right to buy NFTs. I think it would be quite unlikely that we ever have even a 
a 1% position in NFTs. Uh, it's just too hard for us to do that at scale. I mean, that could we could talk about that for like 20 minutes. Why? Because that's kind of the new hot thing. We're going to actually start buying these JPEGs themselves rather than just the infrastructure plays that exist in the market. And even just your answer made me think of a few different questions. But I want to think about the opportunity in terms of not you, the investor, but the individual, right? I get emails every single day from people talking about uh, how their client is now launching a new collection from Martha Stewart to, what did I get today? Leon Bridges. I love Leon Bridges, by the way, to Snoop Dogg, right? I mean, 10,000, 20,000 unit collections for these artists. And what they're trying to do, I understand, is tap into a value that they couldn't tap into, engage with their audience in a way that they couldn't before. But how are the valuations justified? There's a lot of arguments out there, and I saw this in the Wall Street Journal the other day that suggests this is not scarcity. There's so many people trying to make these plays. So how do you justify 10th, 20th, and beyond floor prices in a market that seems oversaturated? Yes. So my general answer to that class of critique is extend your time horizon. Um, Intended to be a little bit forcing people to think differently. So like before the internet, people could never imagine the sheer number of blogs out there. Even Twitter in its early days, it was hard to imagine what what do you mean you're going to tweet about what you ate for breakfast, right? People couldn't imagine the use case for Twitter. There, there was like, I don't know, 20 TV channels that mattered, right? Kind of sort of pre-internet. And uh, that was just a function of like limitations of distribution and antenna of radio waves and, and control and the FCC and all these other things. And then also it turns out that this is probably the hardest thing for people to grok is the people who were already in their 30s and their 40s uh, had no interest in like tweeting. That's not strictly true, but that was, you know, mostly true. It turns out people who were 15 when Twitter came out uh, were very interested in tweeting. And it was just, you know, a fundamentally new behavior drive for people who were more internet native and, and who consumed and thought about content differently. And so when I see these critiques of like, okay, just assume every musician above, you know, tier X, doesn't matter, like pick some threshold, is going to issue a 10,000 NFT collection. Like, let's just assume there's 100% issuance rate by those musicians. And, and like, is that too much? Is that is that bad or, or something? I don't really see see any reason why that can't sustain people love music uh specifically uh i mean they love other forms of, of culture and art as well but i'll just touch on music for now and you know most musicians have probably a base like big musicians have a base of like a minimum hundred thousand like hardcore fans um and maybe a million or even more potentially uh i've met taylor swift maybe has 40 million, you know, hardcore fans for all, for all we know. And so it's not crazy to me to think that, you know, given that your audience base, remember, is not 330 million Americans, but theoretically is 3 billion people who speak English. I don't, I don't know how many people speak English around the world, but I'm going to guess it's something like 3 billion. If that's, that's your audience base, right? And you distribute to all those people using Spotify and Apple Music today anyways and YouTube, selling 10,000 unit collections seems pretty trivial, actually, even at, at sustained prices. I think people substantially underestimate the, the the scale of what the internet brings. When everything in your physical life is is a function of what's in your geographic range, 
um, including collectibles like buying a sports card. But then when you go to the internet, it's just everything, the range of everything becomes infinity and the addressable market becomes infinity. All of these things become much, much easier to sustain. I have no view if the current floor prices for all of these things are going to go up or down. I don't know or even care, actually. I just, I just find that class of arguments to be fundamentally short-sighted. Yeah, and and that's underpinned by this notion that the TAM for all of this, to your point, is basically unlimited. Yeah, I mean, this is the story of the internet, right? Like, it used to be, right, remember eight or ten years ago, even, even by VCs, like multi-billion dollar outcomes were extraordinarily rare. And and so one view of the last 10 years is federal, federal monetary policy just juiced the valuations of everything. The other view is software ate the world. And like when with software, the great thing is you can sell to everyone everywhere in the world kind of sort of instantly for kind of sort of zero marginal cost. And so I just think the TAMs for everybody just got way, 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 way bigger. Um, I think that's, that's the much more obvious and credible explanation. That has historically been kind of problematic with content as opposed to functions. Um, and, and this is kind of just the uh, thing, the same internet economics and applying it to content uh, as opposed to a function. But everyone likes to talk about who the winners are in Web3. And there's been some back and forth on Twitter between figureheads in the crypto industry about what this future looks like. And you have some folks saying, that the new VCs in this industry are the same ones that back the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world. And now they're the big web three proponents, but let's think about who the losers are here for a second in a world where crypto web three empowers creators who loses, what companies are potentially going to see their revenues diminish and for the companies that are trying to make their own play within that world, is it going to work, right? We see Meta trying to make its own play in the in the metaverse component or segment. Can they successfully enter into Web3 unscathed? So there's two questions there. Who are the losers and can the ones who are part of Web2 successfully make the transition to Web3? I think Web3 is probably a lot less disruptive to, I'm going to say, society at large than Web2 was. Web3 is about permissionless flow of value. Web2 is about permissionless flow of information. Value is technically a subset of information. And, and so in that sense, Web2, I think, will have, when we look back in 20 years, I think Web2 will have had a larger overall societal impact, specifically the smartphone. I mean, it's hard to imagine any uh, invention that will have more profound impact in, in human history than the smartphone. Well, what about Solana? Uh, I would say smartphone over Solana. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, I actually think there's going to be too many losers to the extent there are losers. It's likely to be record labels or, or the most obvious ones or any other, mm. uh, middleman that kind of gates content production today, um, in some ways. Sure. Uh, but there's actually not that many of those. Um, like Netflix has already kind of done that within movies, right? And TV, they just backwards integrated as, as an aggregator um, from controlling the subscription on the front end with the consumer. You know, art artists, I mean, like, you know, maybe Sotheby's is like probably not in a good place to be, right? And what's what's the other uh, big big auction house? Does, they, they don't really do anything. You know, Christie's. Christie's yeah. yeah, Christie's, that one. Um, and obviously smaller ones will definitely get, will definitely be left for, for nothing. But there's actually not that many businesses that are gating content, I should say scarce content in some way. 
so I'm not too worried about losers. I think the much more interesting question are who the winners, and I think the substantial majority of the winners will be net new uh, businesses and net new protocols. To your point, it's less about them taking market share or, yeah, taking market share from existing industry incumbents and more about bringing to the surface value that they couldn't bring to the surface before. That's what NFTs are all about. That's what Web3 is all about. It's giving creators another bow in their quiver to extract value from the stuff they're already doing on a daily basis. Uh, That's correct. The ability to let your super fans self-identify and spend was kind of sort of-ish impossible for most content outside of art, like art you can hang on your wall or carp statues. Uh, the, the social norms just didn't exist for that. Uh, and those social norms are being established now. I think a lot of the, again, the pushback to your earlier, your question about how can we sustain all these NFT collections is just people failing to understand that patronage models for creativity are not static and they, they will change and evolve. Uh, and, and this seems to be the start of that, that evolution. I think the other aspect of it is just because there's a lot of crap out there, that crap does not chip away or take away from the value that exists out there. Like if I'm thinking of that specific Wall Street Journal article, the author is trying to make a point that because there's so much abundance of supply, then most things trend towards zero. But if that were the case, then why do people spend millions on photography and tens of millions on art when you, Kyle, can draw a picture every single day? I can take 100 photos, 100 selfies of myself every day. The logic just doesn't stand. Yeah, I mean, this is true in in all classes of everything. The top few percent of of the wealth, uh, people who control wealth, control the vast majority of wealth. The top few people in politics in D.C. can, you know, control the federal government. The top handful of musicians dominate, you know, culture like Kanye and and whoever else, right? Like this this power law distribution happens in in companies, right? The top five companies are like a third of the S&P 500 or whatever. You just see these distributions everywhere. Um, I I think it's just kind of funny people can't uh, recognize that, that parallel. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive 
investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Maybe we can take a second to zoom out and think about the broader macro landscape. We are focusing on crypto day in and day out because it's just what we're what we do. It's the industry that we're in. But the outside world is pretty interesting, right? You have, if we're thinking about NFTs, luxury goods over the course of the last year have soared. The the cost of watches has soared, luxury used cars. While at the same time, more recently, we've seen a pullback in tech names and the likes of Robinhood to Backed to the funds managed by Kathy Wood. We have inflation ramping up and the potential of hiked interest rates to combat said inflation. As an investor, all of this stuff is going on. It seems to be tied to crypto in in some way or another. The recent Ukraine-Russia conflict has seeped into our market. How do you navigate all of this as a crypto venture investor? Uh, We don't really. Um, There's different ways to produce alpha. Some people look at global events and macro and all these things and try and play that. I have no business producing alpha there. Uh, I am totally incapable. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at producing alpha by identifying new theses and new ways to leverage these self-sovereign technologies and permissionless networks to do things that weren't possible before. I'm a lot better at the latter than the former, and I just focus on that. One of the most interesting things we've actually seen happen in, in soft markets in the last 10 years has been the rate of acceleration of valuation growth for an individual company um, has substantially accelerated. You've probably seen the graph that shows like time it took to get to a billion dollars of revenue for Salesforce and then for Slack and then for Dropbox and then whatever. You can do this for a whole bunch of companies. And, and then if you date it by uh, year the company was founded, you can see it just keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And it's so like, what's the cause? It can be said for valuations too. Correct. I mean, revenue and valuations are obviously yeah. going to be fundamentally correlated. Um, and, and so like, what's the causal explanation? And like, I think it's actually fairly obvious. It's kind of sort of now everyone in the world has a smartphone kind of sort of, they all have a good internet connection and they're like now comfortable spending money online. 10 years ago, people weren't super comfortable buying apps, for example. Today, there's people are a lot more comfortable doing that. Apple's made it better. It's been become normalized, destigmatized, whatever. And so it's actually crystal clear why when you're getting your addressable universe is 5 billion people have a smartphone, why valuations can skyrocket so quickly for such a young company. And so given that reality, uh, someone in my position, it's actually, I would argue, extremely irrational to even bother to think about macro. If I can identify something before it hits big, what I know about now the internet and 
how things propagate through the internet, uh, it's just extremely rational to focus on that. And that new inventions are going to be made regardless of global macro conditions. You know, like who cares about macro? Like people will invent new things. That's a pretty interesting and perhaps in the traditional world, somewhat of a contrarian point of view. I was listening to Howard Lindzen on Odd Lots over the weekend, and he was unpacking with Tracy and Joe the sort of market route in growth stocks and how that's seeping into the private market. And he kind of took a, I, I don't, I want to be respectful to Howard, but just listening to it, it was a little on the cusp of like, okay, boomer, you know, like he was poo-pooing the idea that everyone out there on Twitter is now an angel investor and the idea that it's kind of ridiculous that there are all of these new private market participants just because maybe they got lucky on crypto or got lucky in NFTs and are now setting up venture funds, or maybe they worked at Google for a little bit and have $5 million to spare. They go out and they raise some money. None of them actually know what a cap table looks like or how venture investing works. With that in mind, do you think maybe there is a bit of froth in venture? Does Howard have a point that there are a lot of people out there who don't know what they're doing? And ultimately, that disconnect between the growth stocks in the public market and the sort of rise in the private market. I mean, you probably see these 100 million, 200 million plus valuations among seed raises in crypto. Are they going to sort of um, meet their own equilibrium? I'm going to so it it feels frothy. I agree with that statement, but that's a very subjective, squishy thing. Um, it doesn't actually mean anything. Sometimes you want to rely on your gut and your feeling, but a lot of times it's counterproductive. There are a lot of investors, I agree, who do not know what they are doing uh, in in venture in in, in crypto specifically. I actually argue it's, it's easier to be a crappy crypto VC than a regular VC uh, because your time liquidity is much shorter. And so it's, it's actually structurally easier to do. I don't think that necessarily means valuations have to come down. The amounts of absolute capital in crypto venture is, is still quite small. Yeah, Tiger and you know Kotsu are starting to get pretty aggressive, but like there's not a hundred Tigers out there. Yeah. So like Tiger alone could actually prop up the entire market, early stage market if they wanted to. I'm not saying that they are but they could. And so I don't really see any reason why high quality teams working in interesting problem spaces will have early stage valuations come down. I think that's relatively unlikely. The other side of that statement is, well, why are, you know, Tiger and A16Z and Paradigm and even Multicoin for that matter, you know, being so aggressive in, in these things and the reason is we think the market opportunities are both very large and more importantly, that once product market fit is established, the rate of growth and adoption for whatever the things are will be faster than most of the things that we have seen. Uh, the viral nature of crypto, the reflexivity in these things is pretty extraordinary. And I, again, I, I still think deeply underappreciated by people who don't live and breathe it every day. How many investments have you guys made in 2022? Uh, uh, I, a dozen? Uh, probably 10 sounds like the right number. 10? Between 5 and 10. 
It's not getting more cautious, though. Uh, we are deploying capital as fast as we've ever deployed it. Which speaks to your previous point here. And it's not just you. It's a lot of these other firms across the market. There's nothing that you could think of that would maybe make you more conservative. Maybe price. Maybe if Bitcoin went to like $20,000. I honestly don't know what the price of Bitcoin is. I actually don't care. Uh, I go out of my way to ignore prices. Unfortunately, my Twitter feed sometimes makes that impossible. But I do my best to never look at the price. Well, do you follow Pomp or CMS? Uh, I, I do follow Dan, unfortunately. Uh, he's funny, <laughs> but he does tweet the price every now and again. I, I don't. I mean, the, the bet I'm making is this is a once in a generation opportunity and transition, and that it is still widely misunderstood by the vast majority of the population. That bet is very asymmetric. The max I can lose is one x. <laughs> the most I can make is a lot more than that. I have no interest in slowing down. That sounds a lot like my thesis in investing in JPEGs. Can only lose one X. Hasn't been as successful as uh, maybe what, what you have been doing at Multicoin, that's for sure. That's maybe evident in our respective backdrops. <laughs> You're in Jackson Hole. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Park City, Utah. Ah, Utah, Utah, Park City. Nice. What brought you out to Utah? Uh, I love snowboarding. Uh, I try and go most days. Uh, yeah, pick, pick Utah is my, my home base. Nice. That's super cool. So walk us through maybe like, you know, it's shaping up to be a very interesting year. I don't think there's going to be a slowdown in capital coming into the market. I've got in my inbox another billion dollar plus fund that's going to be announcing next week. And between you and me, there are people raising who have zero background in crypto. They just have a a fancy name. So that's where the bids coming from, right? Uh, in early stage venture, for sure, that's the case. And even to a large extent in uh, public markets, I was, I did not expect this, but I, I've received many emails in the last 60 days of public pension funds buying, not just BTC and ETH directly, buying Sol, buying other layer ones directly. They were just buying a basket of kind of what they perceived to be the top layer ones. I, I was stunned that a public pension was doing that directly. So I think those are the bid. Is this sort of um, going to be a rehash of, of your infamous tweet about the billionaires <laughs> calling you about Solana? Now it's the pension funds too? Everyone's calling. They all want to learn. No, but in all seriousness, um, Obviously, there are many different types of market participants that can move price in one way or the other. But what do you think's making these billionaires that you talk to and the pension funds more comfortable going out into the long tail of coins? For the longest time, it was regulatory uncertainty. Has that subsided or is it just like buy-in to the actual mission of what something like Solana or some of these other coins can do? So... Uh a couple of things I want to push back on there. One, I think is definition of long tail. I think any of the major layer ones are no longer considered long tail. So Solana, Avalanche, Luna, you know, these kinds of things, BNB, whatever. I, I don't think those are considered long tail assets anymore. Two, I think regulatory risk was a reason for people to not do things. Like if, if you were the portfolio manager at pick your large public endowment or foundation, mm -hmm. it was kind of the reason to just like stop and not bother to try and push it through. But I think what most of them have realized in the last 
year or so, a year and a half, has been that there's actually a pretty dumb reason and that it's not, and more importantly, that it's not actually a valid reason. It is okay to be invested in things that have an unclear regulatory status. You need to size them appropriately in your portfolio knowing that, but like it is fundamentally okay. There's different forms of risk, right, in the world. There's interest rate risk, there's credit risk, whatever, you know. There's pandemic risk, like there's all forms of risk. Legal risk is just another form of risk. It's fine and, and you can have it in the portfolio. So it's starting to happen. I think the other thing, and this is actually probably the most important, is Mark Andreessen wrote his famous article in the Wall Street Journal in 2011 about software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Every major institutional investor in the world has at this point read that op-ed at least once, if not several times. And a lot of them in 2010 or 11 were still skeptical of the internet. They were like, ah, Google's useful. All the other stuff is kind of dumb. Uh, and there's a lot of people who genuinely believe that circa 2010. Uh, today, uh, there's not a single person with half brain in the world who believes that. Everyone has seen the complete transformation of society as a function of mobile and cloud. And the natural question is, what's next? Is it, right? I don't think it's actually quite irrational to believe that humanity p- peaked in 2021 or whatever, and that like we just didn't invent the next thing. And so there's a search for it. And and crypto, I don't think crypto displaces smartphones. That's actually kind of a pretty stupid statement. But but it certainly has the opportunity to be to be a new vector of of a kind of software platform that will uh, have a pretty dramatic impact on the world. And I believe that view is actually quite rational given what's happened in the last decade, and that causes capital to go after the major technology platforms that look to be powering, you know, the future of crypto. As a venture investor, you have to think a little bit more long term than some of the other participants out there. In the short term or in the medium term, when you think about risk, incidents like wormhole, certain days on which Solana is not performing as well, does this have an impact in the thinking or the adoption curve among some of these larger investors with with whom you speak? No. People confuse different con- two different concepts that are that are similar but distinct, and those concepts are risk and uncertainty. If you flip a coin, there's 50-50 chance it's heads or tails, but there's a 100% probability that it will be heads or tails, <laughs> right? Um, the risk that the coin is not going to give you heads or tails is zero. <laughs> the uncertainty is, is it heads or tails? I think there is a pretty large class of capital in the world, like you know, the people managing this capital are collectively managing 50 trillion plus who assign a pretty high, not 100% probability, but who assign a very high probability, like 90% range to crypto having a meaningful impact on society at large. They don't, they have no more specific view than that, but they have that view. And and if you're managing capital at scale and, and that is what you believe and you have no idea the answer is BTC or ETH or Sol or Luna or whatever, then you just buy all of them. And that's what they're doing, is, that, is they're not trying to buy the DeFi names. They're just saying, look, just buy the tech platforms and go along a basket of them. And that's actually extremely rational to do, uh, adjusted for your ability to uh, uh, put very high probability to a range of outcomes that, that is actually very easy to go along with a very asymmetric upside skew. We've talked a bit about what you're expecting for the year in terms of crypto you're you're not expecting that much of a pullback in terms of the tidal wave of private capital. You're not expecting things to get 
that much more cautious. You're expecting maybe, maybe year is not the time frame, but it, that will be a great story. When that happens, you, you let me know, uh, when a pension fund buys some Solana or Luna, that will, that will be huge. I should have emailed you a few weeks ago. <laughs> Anything else that you have on your horizon or you're looking at in your crystal ball? Uh, I mean, I spend my time thinking about a lot of things. At the firm, I spend my time across a few areas today. One is metaverse things broadly. I, I really hate the term metaverse, but uh, I'm quite fascinated by the concept um, and think it will be. What do you What do you hate about that term? The general rule of thumb is if it's in the deck, if the word metaverse is in the deck, it is in no way related to the metaverse, um, is the that, that statement holds true 96% of the time. And unfortunately, there's a lot of metaverse decks these days. So that's kind of annoying. And just all the things are the same. They're just all like a 3D world with some UGC and you can move things around. I mean, there's been a hundred of those. So what do you, what, well, we, I mean, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but but maybe we can take just a minute or so on this. What are you looking for? Like, there's obviously a ton of plays out there from Sandbox to Decentraland to Crypto Voxels, you don't want another one of those. You want something a little bit more dynamic? And, and, sorry, and I don't mean to say that those won't be successful or not. There, there will be a lot of them that will be extremely successful. Um, I have no real ability to... It's very hard to tell them apart with, with precision. When I look to make investments metaverse-centric, I'm looking to invest in the underlying infrastructure that will power a lot of things. I think Render is a great example of this. Uh, I think DeFi broadly fits in this bucket. I think stuff like Graph, um, stuff like Ceramic, stuff like Fluence, we just announced all these investments recently. All this Web3 infrastructure, I think, is going to power the metaverse. I, I hold there's an ideological view that the metaverse should be as close to credibly neutral as possible. I don't think it will be perfectly credibly neutral, but it needs to be close to that. And the Web3 stack is going to be the enabling thing that gets us there. So I'm investing in that quite aggressively. It's pretty interesting. So that's one component. That's one thing you're looking at. Anything else? Uh, I spent a lot of my time today thinking about creator monetization and Web3 social broadly. Mm -hmm. I think in the next 18 months, there will be at least one major social media thing that breaks out that is very crypto native. Mm. Um, at least one, maybe two or three. They won't displace the use case that Snapchat or Telegram or Twitter occupy for the vast majority of the world. Uh, I want to be clear about that. I think they will unlock new types of behaviors, predominantly for what I will call the crypto native audience. My guess is that like the number of people who are really truly crypto native today is like about a million. Rough guess. No more than 10, certainly, but probably closer to one than 10. And that is now a large enough market to bootstrap some meaningful scale social dynamics. Yeah. I think I think crypto Twitter will not exist in 24 months. I think the entirety of crypto Twitter will be off of Twitter in 24 months. They're gonna go to this new, more crypto native social network that you're that you're anticipating. One or multiple, correct. Yes. But that's a scary thing. How do I get my 120 some odd thousand followers over to a new platform? They're going to have to 
figure out a way to extract that data or, or something. Uh, it's going to really hurt your ego, Frank, huh? I know. I have nothing <laughs> else going on for me. I guess people listen to the show, so that's, that's nothing. They're mostly here for the guests. They're not here for the host, Frank. Uh, probably not, especially <laughs> since they can't see me. Now, if they could see me, that would be a game changer. And if they could see you. Your mustache is so charming. Certainly would be a game changer. Um, you're you're dropping all these interesting bombs towards the end, Kyle. You're never going to let me let you leave. Crypto Twitter is not going to exist in, in the next two years. There's going to be a new crypto native social media entity that comes into the fold. Entities. Entities. Two to three, I think you said. Plural. Just very interesting. Um, very contrarian. Very dynamic. Kyle Samani, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people, if they want to get your insights, where can they go and follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just my name. But not for long. Uh, Not for long. I'll be off soon. Uh, I will at some point tweet. This is my last tweet. I can't wait today to write that tweet. I don't know when it'll be, but it is coming. But you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Samani, K-Y-L-E-S-A-M-A-N-I. And my DMs are open, so you can DM me or you can tag me in public either way. Well, there you have it, folks. Once again, we've been joined today by Kyle Samani, founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital. Thanks so much for being on the show. Frank, it was a pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.